If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. German propaganda talks about Britain as trying to create, trying to make Germany into one huge concentration camp. Very, very emotive language even in 1914. That was Alexander Watson on German views of Britain during the First World War. The first word of French that the troops learned was allumette. Matches. We had plenty of everything but matches. Plenty of cigarettes, plenty of tobacco, and no matches. And that was First World War veteran William Collins describing his experiences arriving in France during the early weeks of the conflict. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good newsagents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, the iPad, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. First up this week is an interview with Dr Alexander Watson, a historian based at the University of Goldsmiths. He has written a new book on the First World War that is very different from most other titles being published in Britain because it focuses on the German and Austro-Hungarian experience of the conflict. I spoke to Alexander a couple of weeks back about his book to find out how the war differed for inhabitants of the Central Powers 
and why he believes they ended up on the losing side. What do you think the fundamental ways were in which the experience of fighting the First World War differed for people in Germany and Austria-Hungary compared to, say, Britain? I think the main difference was, uh, firstly, a much stronger sense of threat, a much, much stronger sense of threat, because, of course, you've got uh, the Russian Empire on your eastern border, if you're either German or from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, especially if you're Polish or Ukrainian. Uh, and of course, Germany was invaded as well in 1914, as, as indeed was Austria-Hungary. So there's a very strong sense as well of the of the major danger of invasion, which you just don't have in uh, in above all Britain. That's one thing. The other major difference is the deprivation, the sheer hardship of the war. Uh, Britain doesn't introduce rationing until February 1918. By that time, Germany and Austria-Hungary have 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 had rationing for three whole years. And um, and people are in a state of desperation and malnutrition. And that, that suffering, as well as the trauma of invasion, is, is something that I think is foreign to the British experience of the First World War. And, and coming on to the start of the war, there's, as I'm sure you're aware, a huge debate still about how far Austria and Germany were culpable for starting the war. Have you come to any conclusions on that issue based on your research? I think that Austria-Hungary bears the greatest responsibility for the war. If you look at what the Austro-Hungarian leaders are discussing in their meetings in July 1914, it's clear that they are planning a war. Uh, the war they're planning, though, is a war against Serbia. What they don't want but are willing to risk and don't really think much about is a general war, a European war, or even a world war. So I blame I blame Austria-Hungary most. I, I then blame Russia after that because Russia responds in very, very aggressive ways to what Austria-Hungary is doing. And I think bears some responsibility in pushing Germany into the war. So my list of the guilty would probably start with Austria-Hungary as number one, followed by Russia two, Serbia three, and then Germany four. There's this talk about the blank cheque whereby... Germany gave supposedly gave Austria-Hungary unqualified support for military action. Does that not make Germany then quite culpable as well for what happened in 1914? It does make Germany partially culpable. But with the blank check, there's two things that need to be remembered. The first is, is that while German leaders recognise that by issuing this so-called blank check, the promise to support Austria-Hungary come what may, uh, they risk a European war. The military leaders at least, and, and most of the other leaders as well, civilian leaders as well, don't think that that's very likely. So they are willing to risk it, but they don't think it's likely. They're not plotting a war. So it makes them culpable, but not as culpable as sometimes they've been presented in the past. And then obviously Britain and France and, and Belgium too become involved when Germany then invades France through Belgium. Was, was that really a strategic mistake or did Germany have no other option if they felt they were going to have to fight France and Russia? Well, it's difficult to answer that question. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, given how much better the German army fights against the French army in 1914, it might be possible to argue that the Belgian plan wasn't necessary because, of course, Belgium brought in Britain. That made the war a lot longer. and It made it much more difficult, if not impossible, for Germany to win. That said, there's strong arguments that Britain would have come in anyway. And there are advantages from the German perspective of invading through Belgium. One of them is, is that uh, they encountered very little resistance much less than 
they would have done if they'd tried to fight against uh, the French fortresses along Germany's border. And the other thing is, is that in doing so, they do capture a crucially important swathe of northeastern France, which is massively important uh, industrially, it's massively important agriculturally, and they, they deny France those resources throughout this very, very long war. So if they were going to have a war, probably the best answer is they, they probably shouldn't have risked the war in the first place, especially since they lose. But if they were going to have a war, they faced a variety of really unattractive options in, in military, tactical and strategic terms. When the war started, how enthusiastic were the people of Germany and Austria-Hungary for going to war? Do we have any idea of that? Yeah, we've got a lot of idea of that. I mean, one of the things that the book does is bring research about reactions to the to the outbreak of the First World War in Austria-Hungary. I've done a lot of new research on that. Um, and, and the answer is they weren't enthusiastic at all. There was very, very, very little enthusiasm. It depends on whether you're talking about Germany or Austria-Hungary when you're thinking about reactions. When Franz Ferdinand is assassinated in, in Germany, there's interest, but then people lose interest up until the Austro-Hungarians produce their ultimatum against Serbia. And then, only then, does the German public begin to worry about whether there'll be a world war. In Austria-Hungary, things are different. Um, in Vienna, the assassination is very much a media event. The monarchy are celebrities at the time. And in Vienna, people are just fascinated by it. The newspapers show pictures of the uh, photographs of the Archduke and his wife leading up to the assassination and then the aftermath of the assassination. It's all very breathless coverage. There's a lot of focus placed on the Archduke's children and a lot of pity and, and, and sympathy for the Archduke's children. The newspapers really know how to get the human angle of what's going on. And beyond Vienna, across the rest of the empire, there is uh, there are really two emotions. The first is mourning. Archduke Franz Ferdinand was respected, if not necessarily popular. He was, after all, the heir to the throne. And there was a lot of fear. There was a massive amount of fear. This was a, a, a major terrorist attack. And there was great fear that there would be follow-up terrorist attacks as well. And what you find in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of the assassinations across the empire, is arrests, arrests of uh, Slavic and especially South Slav students from Sarajevo right through to Prague and to Lviv. And you find a, a lot of racial tensions as particularly Germans denounce Slovenes or other people's living in their mixed communities. And you get a lot of denunciations flood into the police. Um, there's great spy fears and there's a huge amount of angst. And that anxiety gets more and more intense as the war approaches. Uh, and it's supposed to Germany as well in, in the last week, week and a half or so of July. And above all, anxiety and fear is what you find in the letters and diaries of the time. Also, in fact, in the newspapers. That changes right at the end, though. That changes right at the end, particularly when Russia mobilizes in Germany. It's amazing how quickly the mood switches. And from fear, you suddenly get resolution. There's still deep reluctance to go into this, but there's a sense of Russia's mobilized. The eastern border is now under major threat. We have no choice. This is what we've got to do. And there's, there is a sense of unity. It's not simply propagandistic. Ordinary people talk about a sense of unity on the streets as the community gathers together to face the looming threat, particularly from the east. And was it possible for the Austro-Hungarian Empire to foster unity among their people, considering that there were just so many different nationalities there? It was much more difficult. It was much more difficult. And as you say, it was difficult partly because the empire was so diverse. When uh, the army mobilises, they issue mobilisation posters in 15 different languages. So that made it more difficult. But there's also a difference in strategy, which is very, very important and is, is usually ignored. The German government makes huge efforts to bring people and groups 
uh, with whom it's had very problematic relationships in peacetime, above all the socialists, um, into the war effort. It makes huge efforts to get them to support it. And that actually doesn't happen in Austria-Hungary. Um, Austro-Hungarian leaders are very worried particularly about the Czechs and whether the Czechs will go along with it. But rather than attempt to reach out to these groups and seek cooperation, instead what Austria-Hungary does above all is repression and um, emergency laws intended to stop any type of resistance. And the support that comes from the public in Austria-Hungary takes the leaders by surprise. It takes them greatly by surprise. So you you don't just have a problem with diversity, you've also got a problem with strategy, because later on in the war it becomes very clear that the German government's attempt to compromise and mobilise socialists who previously were hostile to it is much, much more effective than this clamp down and oppression that the Austro-Hungarians try, particularly in Austria. Now, in Britain we generally think of the First World War primarily as a battle on the Western Front. For the central powers, what did they see as the most important fronts where they were fighting? It depends on the time of the war. I mean, there's there's much more evenness because the Eastern Front is very important. And particularly at the beginning of the war, all eyes are focused on Russia, partly because Russia has such a large army, far larger than any other European power, partly because it's mobilised so early, and also because it invades Germany and Austria-Hungary. The invasion of Germany is something that no one talks about anymore, but it begins in August 1914. Russian troops are finally pushed off German territory only in March 1915. It lasts that long. Uh, in Austria-Hungary, in uh, a region called Galicia, which is now southern Poland and western Ukraine, the Russians have an occupation in at least a little bit of it right through most of the war into 1917. So Russia is, is, is crucially important. And the Eastern Front is very, very important important as well in terms of the extreme nature of the war. Many more awful and horrible things happen there than the Western Front. The Western Front's trenches have taken taken notice away from that. But the Eastern Front is, is very, very important for all sorts of reasons and very, very scary, especially at the start of the war, for both Germany and Austria-Hungary. Come the autumn of 1914, however, the Germans in particular begin focusing on Britain much more as their major enemy. Uh, and therefore, the Western Front as well, but particularly Britain as the major enemy. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is is that uh, fighting Britain is actually very scary. In Britain, we're used to thinking of Britain as the underdog, Germany, this militaristic power, superb army, so and so forth. But actually, Britain is the world's superpower in 1914. It's the global power in 1914. And it fights differently from continental powers. The Germans know how to deal with other people's armies. They have a very effective army of their own. But Britain fights differently. It fights with the navy. It fights through economic means. It fights through blockade. And that's scary for the Germans. They don't know how to deal with it. They have to mobilise the population to fight a power which, before 1914, much of the population looks to as an example. The socialists like Britain because uh, they see it as a beacon of, of, of liberalism and worker rights. Imperial, German imperialists admire Britain's colonies. Many German leaders send their sons to uh, British universities. The German Chancellor's son, Bedman Holweg, goes to Oxford. So there's a lot of fondness for Britain. And there's great disappointment at the beginning of the war that Britain has joined what one intellectual termed not just the side of wrong, but also the side of Asiatic barbarism, the side of this brutal Russian empire, which is Europe's most regressive regime. Um, and then, as I've said as well, there's fear too. And that fear turns into anger when the British bloc aid is implemented. It starts from the autumn of 1914, but it really gets going in the spring of 1915. And this is one of the things that makes life on the German and Austro-Hungarian front so much harder than in Britain, because it cuts off not simply military supplies, but also food.
that causes a lot of anger. Um, German propaganda talks about Britain as trying to create, trying to make Germany into one huge concentration camp. Very, very emotive language, even in 1914. And this makes Britain Germany's major opponent through the middle years of the war. And actually, that was something I was going to come on to, was asking you about, because in, in Britain, there was a lot of propaganda against particularly Germany and with the Kaiser portrayed as some kind of terrible monster. Were equivalent things done in Austria-Hungary and Germany about the Allied powers they were fighting? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, the, the sense that Britain was only fighting to knock out Germany economically was a, was a key part of um, German propaganda. And in 1918, the Germans even go a bit pan-European and say Britain and the US should stay out of Europe's affairs. But yes, there's great stereotyping of Germany's enemies, and that's done a lot. And there's there's also some righteous resentment. I mean, I think that no power radicalizes the war more than Britain does. And that's because, as I've said, Britain fights differently. It fights with economic means, with maritime means. It fights through blockade. And the key thing about blockade is that it deliberately targets civilians. It blurs the boundaries between the military and the civilian. And as I've said, it causes massive malnutrition right across East Central Europe. That in turn has other wider effects for the post-war period too, because what you find as a result of the deprivation, partly caused by the total mobilization that both Germany and Austria-Hungary undergo, but also because of this British blockade, which stops supplies coming in. This massive deprivation that fragments communities. It fragments communities along political lines, left and right. But a lot of East Central Europe is is ethnically very heterogeneous. As you've said, Austria-Hungary is very mixed, lots of different peoples. And it brings these peoples, the, the deprivation causes these peoples to retreat into their national groups and shatters ethnic communities. The example that I've given in the book that I've really focused on to try and bring this out is the example of the city of Krakow in, in Poland, where you have a very good relationship between the 20% of the population who are Jewish and the 80% who are Christian Poles before the First World War. Jews are on the city council. There's not intermarriage, but there's nonetheless quite a lot of interaction between the Jewish and the Polish communities in the city. And what you find is that that breaks down as a result of these big food shortages during the First World War, so that by 1918, by the spring, you actually have almost a civil war going on in Krakow, where the authorities completely lose control and you have uh, bands of youth, of Polish youths and Jewish youths beating each other up. So the, the point the point that I, I'm making is, is, yes, there is a lot of propaganda against Britain. There's a lot of propaganda about Britain's starvation war. Uh, there's a lot of actually harking back to the Irish famine, which, of course, is closer to contemporaries then than the First World War is to us today. And saying, look, Britain has already starved out Ireland 60 years ago, 60, 70 years ago. Now it's trying to do the same to us. But actually, this isn't in some ways just propaganda. This is also channeling what are in some ways justified grievances. Britain is carrying out a really ruthless war, which has massive effects both during the war for East Central European society and in the war's aftermath. On a kind of related note, after the war, and even I think during the war, Germany and Austria were accused of committing some atrocities. To what extent was that true? Was it justifiable to say they committed war crimes? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. I mean, the atrocities are normally normally referred to what happens in France and Belgium in 1914, when the German army massacres six and a half thousand Belgian and French civilians. What's less well recognised is that this type of behaviour wasn't simply German. It was actually pretty common. Most armies, at least in fact all continental armies, conduct similar activities, conduct similar atrocities in 1914. The worst 
perpetrators are actually the Austro-Hungarians who kill 30,000 Ukrainians, thereabouts. Uh, and these Ukrainians are by and large their own population. But the Russians too, uh, they, they kill German civilians when they invade East Prussia, which is a, a province of Germany. They also kill civilians in Galicia and they deport forcibly um, tens of thousands of Austro-Hungarian Jews during their invasion as well. So there are a lot of atrocities going on on all fronts in 1914. Where more serious war crimes come in, but where they actually had less attention, I think up until now, is in how the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians behave in the very large occupied zones of Eastern Europe that they conquer. Um, and particularly in what is now Lithuania and Latvia, there's a very harsh military regime called Oberost set up by the Germans, which is really a nightmarish regime full of forced labor and mass exploitation. It's very unpleasant. So, so yes, there are certainly atrocities that are carried out and very serious ones. But at least in 1914, the Germans in particular aren't, aren't exceptional in that. That's, that's, that's widespread. You spoke earlier about the blockade that Britain did. Do you think in the end it was breakdown of the home front that caused Germany and Austria to lose the war? No, I don't. I think that the war is ultimately lost on the Western Front. The war is ultimately lost uh, on the Western Front because the German army is defeated in the last months of 1918. But that said, it's defeated in part because it loses the will to fight on. And the reasons why it loses the will to fight on are complicated, but uh, they tie into the deprivation at home and at the front. And they also tie into simple exhaustion. There comes a point by the summer of 1918 where it's clear to everybody that while materially the, the Germans perhaps can fight into 1919, there's very little point in doing that because there's no possibility of winning. And as a result, you get a psychological collapse in the army, which begins with the lower ranks, spreads to the officers, uh, the junior officers, who help organise mass surrenders. Uh, they're key players in organising mass surrenders, which in turn allows the Allies to advance and destabilise the front and, and creates more depression and more surrenders. And that, that ultimately spreads right up to the high command when Ludendorff, the, the German commander, has something approaching a nervous breakdown in the autumn of 1918. So I don't think the war ends on the home fronts, but the home fronts are still crucially important for understanding how it ends and the post-war shape of East Central Europe, why German politics are so paralysed between and polarised between left and right, and why Austria-Hungary breaks down into something approaching nation-states in 1918. So that, the home front's crucially important, less for understanding the defeat than understanding how that defeat takes place, and particularly the consequences of that defeat. And so on the battlefield, you say that Germany was essentially defeated by the end of 1918. Do you, was that due to the Allies' superior military tactics, or was it more they just simply had more resources to throw at it? it it's partly due to the fact that the Allies develop better tactics, but it's above all due to it's above all due to resources, which helps the British keep going even when it looks like they might be defeated in the spring of 1918. This is something that you get right across the war. It's always something that baffles me a bit with British history books on the First World War. If you take a look at how we remember the Somme, for example, the first day of the Somme, image is I think this is fair, of inexperienced British soldiers coming up as the underdogs against this massively professional, well-equipped German army. And this is, this is the image that we have. But actually, if you look at it from the German perspective, 
it, it looks completely different. Many of these British soldiers who go over the top on the 1st of July have been in at the front for nine months or a year. So they're not newcomers. They know about fighting. They've been trained during the war reasonably thoroughly. And they outnumber the Germans four to one on the first day of the Somme. And these poor German soldiers in their trenches have been under a seven-day bombardment. And they're thinking, when is it going to stop? And in fact, by the sixth and seventh day, they're thinking, is it going to stop? There are rumours going around the dugouts. They're just going to keep on bombarding us until everything is obliterated. Nobody is going to come over. This is going to go on forever. And it's actually, in this case, the Germans who are the underdogs. And the fact that what happens on the 1st of July, the slaughter of masses of British troops, is very, very unexpected on all sides. I mean, the, the Germans are surprised about it as well. Uh, they're in a complete panic by the 1st of July. And this sense of the Germans being the underdogs, I mean, this, uh, above all materially, they're, they're massively outnumbered in terms of man for man, but they also don't have the tanks, they don't have the artillery that their enemies do have. This is a trend throughout the entire war. And by 1918, it just gets too much. It, they collapse because they've, they've shot their bolt, they've tried to win, they've had their last ditch offensive, they failed. And as a result, there is no point in going on fighting. And the troops at the front recognise that, the officers at the front recognise that. And that, above all, that psychological collapse is what, is what causes is the defeat. So by the time we get to the armistice in November 1918, what kind of state are Germany and Austria-Hungary in at home? How close are they to collapse? Oh, well, they're, they're very close to collapse. I mean, especially Austria-Hungary uh, is on the brink of total collapse. I mean, societal collapse, but also the food supply is collapsing as well. And this, this is one of the things that I've really tried to do in the book. I've really tried to bring the the individual perspective through. I mean, I've, I've talked a bit about the soldiers' perspectives, but also I've read a lot of letters and diaries of, of civilians in Germany and Austria and what today is Poland to try and get through and explain to readers and understand myself just how desperate people became by 1918. The experience is just horrifying. In Austria-Hungary, by the spring of 1918, uh, in, in Vienna particularly, which is, is, is very short of food, the only way that the authorities are able to stop mass starvation is by stealing barges carrying grain destined for Germany from Romania going through the city uh, on the Danube. This is how desperate they are. They're very much living hand to mouth. And what makes it even worse is that officials in the different regions of Austria are becoming more nationalised and have become more alienated from the state and are blocking and disrupting the food supply to areas that need it. So the big food surplus areas are Galicia, which has been devastated in 1914. That's, that's southern Poland and western Ukraine today and Bohemia, which which is now in, in the Czech Republic. And officials in both of these areas are, are trying to disrupt food from getting out of these uh, of these provinces to other parts of the empire. And as a result, there's massive starvation. There's also huge antagonism between Germans who generally live in particularly deprived areas and Poles, Czechs and Hungarians who, whose food situation is still dire but a bit better. So by, by 1918 you have, um, you have massive malnutrition, you're hovering on the verge of starvation in some place, and in, in Vienna there is starvation, and you're also getting People are looking for a way out. They're looking for a solution to, to, to this, this horror, which, which appears almost endless. And one of the things they find is rather than continuing to be part of an empire, maybe adopting national ideology and buying into that and following nationalists and setting up nation states is, is the way forward. So what you find is that these, these food shortages, particularly in Austria-Hungary, actually cause the, the, the state to unravel. So at what point does Austria-Hungary just cease to exist as an empire? 
Well, I mean, formally, it doesn't cease to exist until November 1918, but already much earlier in the year, by by the spring, there are large parts of Austria-Hungary, particularly the Polish bits, uh, Ukrainian bits, um, the South Slav bits, where the government has lost much control. Its writ doesn't so much really extend to these areas. They're full of deserters who are terrorizing the police. They're full of officials who have, at best, ambiguous loyalties to the state and are really prioritizing their national loyalties by this point. So although Austria-Hungary officially ceases to exist in November 1918, actually the state is already losing control much, 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 much earlier. So having studied in in great depth the German-Austro-Hungarian war experience, what do you think about the peace treaties that were then imposed on them? Do you think they were fair or unfair? I think they were a disaster, to be honest with you. I think the big problems with them were twofold. The first is that at the end of the war, the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians appealed to Wilson, to President Wilson of the United States, to make peace. And the reason that they do that is admittedly cynical. It's that Wilson has made several pronouncements encouraging the idea that this is not going to be a victor's peace, that this is going to be much more a peace of compromise. The condition that he gives for that is that there must be revolution in in particularly Germany. He can't deal with what he sees as the militaristic leaders of Germany. And there is a revolution in Germany. At first, it's a fake revolution, which is organized above. But on the 9th of November, after there's first a, a naval mutiny in Kiel at the end of October, and then this spreads, uh, the revolutionaries spread first across the northern coast and then throughout Germany, and by the 9th of November reach Berlin, this, this turns into a real revolution. Uh, so the Germans have actually got rid of the leads that Wilson objects to, in the sense they've fulfilled their side of the bargain, but they still get what seems to be an extraordinarily harsh peace. Some historians have argued that actually things like reparations are much more manageable in terms of Germany's ability to pay them than is presented at the time. And that's true. But at the same time, the Allies are presenting these reparations at the time as very, very harsh because they need to satisfy their own public's desire for revenge. So it's not surprising that the Germans are doing the same thing as well. Additionally, the other crucial mistake, major mistake that the Allies make, and this this extends back to 1917, is that the peace is built on the basis of national self-determination. This is a slogan that comes about in 1917 as a result of the Russian Revolution, but it's adopted by Wilson, the right of peoples to self-determine. And the problem with this is that East Central Europe is very mixed. What it means is, is that peoples should be able to be democratic and should be able to have their own states. Not necessarily all peoples, but this is the idea. People's who the Americans and who the Allies considered developed enough should be able to have their own nation states. The difficulty with this is, of course, East Central Europe is massively mixed. And as a result, you can't get ethnically homogeneous nation states. It it doesn't work like that. The land, the peoples are too mixed in together. And as a result, places like Poland, places like Czechoslovakia, in the interwar period, a third of their populations are minorities of different ethnicities. So this doesn't work. So in that sense, it's already a difficult idea. What makes it worse, however, is that there's got to be winners and losers because the population is so mixed, and the losers are Germany and Hungary. So as a result of this, because Germany loses territory, you get German minorities in Poland, 
in Czechoslovakia, because you get lots of Hungarian minorities around Hungary as well. These these two countries aren't, aren't going to buy into this peace treaty, which is so clearly against them and so clearly against their people. And of course, they have their, people lose their, their homes as a result of this peace treaty. There are refugees that flood in in the immediate post-war period, post-1918 period, into Germany, into Hungary, and they bring immense bitterness with them. So there's a sense of betrayal by Wilson in the old central powers. And there's also, I think if you stand back, a reasonable argument to be made that this way of organising Europe at the expense of the losers isn't the way to create a lasting peace. Um, So I, I think it was a disaster. Do you think that it made another European war essentially inevitable? Oh, that's a stronger that's a stronger statement. I wouldn't necessarily want to stick my neck out and 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 say it made an, another European war inevitable. I think it made it more likely, and I think it certainly made a lot of animosity very likely. I mean, it's notable that even when Germany is about as normal as it gets in the interwar period, um, it's a, the, the Weimar during the Weimar democracy in the 1920s, the German democratic government never accepts its eastern borders. It does accept its western borders with France, but it never accepts its eastern borders, which suggests that, or I think underlines the point that this is a serious impediment to producing any long-lasting peace or normal diplomatic relations in Europe. So I wouldn't say that it makes it inevitable, but I would say that uh, it makes inevitable antagonistic relations and it makes war more likely. Yeah, I think so. I presume that you've done a lot of research in the former Austria-Hungary and Germany for writing this book. So how do people in, in these areas today feel about the war as we get close to centenary? For most of them, it's the first thing is it's much less important, I think, than it is to people in Britain, simply because the Second World War was so much more horrendous. And because, of course, um, the Germans in particular did so many more horrendous things that the memory of that has kind of overlain the horrors and, and the difficulties of the First World War. It's only actually very recently that interest in the First World War has, has, has become more intense. Um, before that, as, I, as I've said, there's the main focus was the Second World War. Additionally, of course, you're dealing with very different national memories. In Germany, November 1918, uh, 11th November 1918 is remembered, if it's remembered at all, as simply the end of the First World War and a defeat. In Poland, by contrast, November 1918 is the time at which uh, an independent Poland was created for the first time in in about 125 years. Um, So while we tend to remember November 1918 as, you know, very somberly with poppies and so on and so forth and think about the victims, in Poland, actually, this is a a time of celebration because this is the, the memory of the foundation of modern Poland. So national memories cause great divergences in how the First World War is thought of in how it's remembered, in what extent it's remembered as well, in different parts of this area. It's a very, very diverse area even today. And and do you think that here in Britain, when we're commemorating the war, we should pay more attention to the German and former Austro-Hungarian viewpoint? Oh, hugely. I, I, I definitely do. I don't really think we can value and, and evaluate Britain's own contribution without understanding both what the enemy was fighting for, and also what Britain did to that enemy as well. And, and, and Britain's role, as I've, as, as I've said already, in um, breaking down Central European society through its blockade. I think these things do need to be talked about, and I don't think they have been so far in, in the commemoration discussion. That was Alexander Watson. Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary at War, 1914 to 1918, will be published in a week's time in the UK by Alan Lane. 
In the US, it is due to be published on the 7th of October by Basic Books and is now available for pre-order. And if you'd like to read more about the First World War, then don't forget that our August issue is a First World War special and is on sale now. Inside, we describe the events of the last week of peace, we challenge some of the great misconceptions of the war, and reveal how different countries around the world feel about the conflict now. You can get hold of a copy in all good newsagents and digitally. And if you are thinking of trying the magazine on the iPad, then you might be interested in a special offer we're running this weekend. We're offering a 30-day free trial to the magazine on the iPad if you try an annual subscription. That means you'll get the August issue for free before you decide whether you'd like to subscribe for definite or not. To take advantage of this offer, simply download the BBC History magazine app and try the annual subscription. But do hurry because this offer ends on the 5th of August this year. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A Second World War pillbox built to safeguard against the risk of a Nazi invasion has been uncovered in Kruken. Councillors had known about the pillbox on the A30 Yeovil Road near Wadham School for some time, but it had for decades lain forgotten under a thicket of trees. It was decided that the time was right to expose the pillbox ahead of the First World War centenary, the Western Gazette reports. Several pillboxes were built along the A30 in 1940 to safeguard against the risk of a Nazi invasion in the southwest. Their primary purpose was to repel any incursions by foreign troops advancing on London. In other news, a replica skeleton of the Plantagenet King and the grave pit in which he was buried 
have gone on display in a new Richard III visitor centre in Leicester. Located opposite Leicester Cathedral, where the former king will be reinterred next spring, the centre recounts the details of the life and death of the controversial king, including the events that led to his rediscovery in a Leicester car park. Among the exhibits is a detailed facial reconstruction of the king, as well as a replica of his skeleton that clearly shows his battle injuries. Visitors will also be able to look down through a pane of glass into the grave in which the former king's remains were found. Meanwhile, a 500-year-old chest owned by an amateur collector of early furniture has been identified as a wedding gift commissioned for the marriage of James IV and Margaret Tudor. The oak chest was recently acquired by Aidan Harrison, who noticed carvings that led him to suspect it related to the 1503 wedding, one of the most pivotal moments in Scottish-English history. The oak chest features the famous love knot that came to symbolise the union. Aidan took his initial research to a leading art historian from the University of Aberdeen, who confirmed its provenance. The marriage of the Thistle and the Rose, which took place at the Palace of Holyrood in Edinburgh on the 8th of August 1503, joined the ruling families of Scotland and England, the Stuarts and the Tudors, and would a hundred years later put a Scottish king, James VI and I, on the English throne. You can read more about this story at historyextra.com. Thank you, Emma. In the last couple of months, we have been broadcasting extracts from interviews with First World War veterans that were conducted by the Imperial War Museum and which accompany the regular series in the magazine, Our First World War. This week, as we finally reach the centenary of the conflict's beginning, it's time for a couple more. First up, it's William Collins, who was a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps when the war broke out. In August 1914, he crossed over to France, and here he is describing that journey. When you were in the Channel, were you aware of any risks from either German surface ships or German submarines at that time? Well, we, 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 were, we, we, we were not aware until we got to, off Folkestone, and then we made a sharp right turn, and on either side of us, as we went straight across to Boulogne, on either side of us was the destroyer. To, go, to keep the submarines away on either side. And we, we, we went across uh, in the afternoon and we landed up at uh, Boulogne about six o'clock or so, or seven, six or seven in the evening. And as the tide wasn't suitable, we dropped anchor and went in on the following, that was on the Sunday, Sunday night, and went in on the following tide early on Monday morning and detrained there, it was the 17th. Detrained de- 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 all the guns and everything on the 17th. Now, well, did you get any sort of a reception, Berloyd? Yeah, absolutely. All well, the French were out there. They, greet, they gave us a huge greeting. And the, uh, because the, the first word of French that the troops learned was allumette, matches. We, we, wish, we, we had plenty of everything but matches. Every, plenty of cigarettes, plenty of tobacco, and no matches. And so we were, we, the, 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 obviously the French knew about this, and these kids had boxes of them. They were offering, selling them. They weren't giving them away, they were selling them. And you met the old stinker, the long thing. You struck one and it nearly poisoned you. Um, Sulfur. Well, how come you didn't have any matches? Uh, was it just that they weren't issued? It, as just they weren't rating? issued, you see. Just that they weren't issued. Now, uh, so the reception, but the, did you have people on the streets cheering you? Oh, or? yes, plenty of people there to cheer us at Boulogne. That was William Collins. And now it's time to hear from William Holbrook. 
William Holbrook was a regular soldier who advanced into Belgium in August 1914, where he fought at the Battle of Mons. Later in the month, he was part of the retreat that followed that battle, and here he is discussing his experiences during that time. How long were you retreating with this uh, mixed unit of 50? Oh, well, these men, well, I suppose we picked up men as we went along. See, the, the original stragglers, like myself and a few others, were really, really members of the regiment that were down on some business and got caught in the retreat, but they were all right. But the, the, a lot of men fell out uh, of the retreating forces, you see, and they had to be picked up. So we had to get we had to carry one another's the rifles, and they all some were in a bad way. Some were these uh, uh, reservists, you see. Uh, I mean, some of them were forty years of age. So and, you, and you picked up stragglers that that probably fell weren't. Out, had fallen out, and uh, <coughs> we got them together. And uh, I remember I saw a couple. They got their their feet were so bad. They were ble- bleeding through their... She took their putties off and tied their putties... Threw the boots away and tied the putties around their, their uh, feet and right back to the putties. In the bad one. And, uh, These stragglers, would would, the, would any coercion be used to make would, them join? I mean, would they be forced to join Not till they got to, uh, I suppose, two days out, about two days out, I suppose. Well, then they were dropping out of the whole world, you know, and this Captain Bridges. There's no, there's no other NGO there. There's only him. Well, he got them together, he, you know, they give them a rest on the side of the road and get them on. Well, when we got to St Quentin, I always remember we halted in St Quentin. They were a bad way of England. Some were sitting on the side of the road crying somewhere. And, and uh, <clears throat> he, he went, there's a shop there, a toy shop. And I remember him going to this shop and got a drum. Would he pay for them? I don't know. There's some people left. I don't know. I can't remember. But they got this drum out of the shop, out the window. I believe he got a tin whistle as well, I think. I'm not quite sure about that. I think he did. And he came out and he spoke to the nanny boy, come on, we're right now. And he got this tr- drum going, he got them together, and th- they marked behind the drum. These stragglers did, so they got them all together. And so he never had to employ force? He never had no, to... no, 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 no. He tried to, he got one helped another, you see. The, the, the younger men, the more fit uh, stragglers, helped these were the elderly ones. Some were left behind, you couldn't get them all back. That was William Holbrook. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read more from our First World War veterans each issue in the magazine. And in the iPad edition, that also includes sound clips. And don't forget about our special free trial offer that's currently available on the iPad when you try an annual subscription. Download the BBC History magazine app to take advantage of that. OK, so that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in the future. And don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, for history news, quizzes, galleries, features, and hundreds of episodes of this very podcast that go back to 2007. Next week, we'll be talking about the French Resistance in the Second World War. And as the First World War centenary activities continue, we'll be taking a global view of that conflict. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. Fletcher.